love about the songs that we've sung is that it doesn't really matter what you've come in here with, Jesus is. Because there's power in that name. He has been given the name that is above every name. And I pray today that you would just experience the truth that Jesus is whatever you need. Will you join me in praying as we transition into God's word? Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful, matchless, incredible name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we get the privilege today of just worshiping you for the gift of Jesus and all that he is. Jesus is son. And Father, today we thank you that Jesus is not just savior, but he's our savior. We give you all the glory and we pray that as we open up your word and we just dig into what it means to worship Jesus as savior, that you would help us see what we've never seen before and do things, Father, in response to the work of your spirit that we've never done before. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you, team. If you're a guest of ours, my name is Craig, and you chose a really crazy Sunday to visit us this morning, so I can say. Um, we've had a mild winter apart from Sundays. Hmm. Sundays seem to be the issue, but I, I believe that God has got you here for a reason as we just continue our series looking at who Jesus is. We're in week number two. Last week, Steve looked at Jesus is Son, and today I'm going to look at Jesus is Savior. Now, the basis for our text is the book of Hebrews. And as I was thinking about this uh, just the other week, and uh, I was sitting at home, and we're having dinner, and my mind is racing, and then out of nowhere, um, Amber Rose, must have been something that was happening in school, said to Jordan and Jaden, uh, hey guys, can you say all 50 states, and how quickly can you do it? And uh, I was kind of stunned by that, and they were floating times out, 20 seconds, 25 seconds, 30 seconds, and they looked at me and said, Dad, what about you? I'm like, I don't even know whether I know them all. So I said, oh, I don't know, I think that one's beyond me. And then thankfully, out of nowhere, somebody said, what about the alphabet? How quickly can you say the alphabet? Well, that's my thing. And I'm like, okay, guys, I can do that. You know, A to Z, that, that's pretty easy. And they were like, how quick do you think you can do it in that? And I said, well, I tell you what, I actually think I can say the alphabet backwards quicker than you can say it forwards. And they were, Jay was like, what? And Jordan was like, don't go there. He's done this on me before. He really can do that. How many of you can say the alphabet backwards? Any of you? Uh, that would be a good, kind of good test, right? I, can you, I, I, it's really weird how I got to do that. I was like six or seven years old. We were having a spelling test in elementary school, right? And there was this spelling test, and there were two words that were really tough. So my cousin, who's about three months younger than I am, and I was sitting on the sofa in my living room at home, in the family room, uh, in Wales, and uh, my aunt was there, and she was teaching us to spell these words. Well, one of them was Mississippi. Don't ask me why a six-year-old boy from Wales needs to learn how to spell Mississippi. I don't know. The other one was encyclopedia. Okay. And, and then we got that down, and she said, well, I tell you what, let me teach you how to say the alphabet backwards. And I can rem just remember it in that moment. And it took me like 10 minutes, and I had it down. Do you want to hear me do it? All right, I, I'm British, I don't say Z, I say Z, okay? If I try and say Z, you'll mess me up. Z-A-X-W-V-U-T-S-H-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. That's basically it, right? And so, but it's just, it's just one of those weird things that I just remember where I was when. 
There's a couple of things like that, right? My mother was over, she got back to Wales just the other week, and somehow she was talking to someone, and she got into the conversation about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and she was like, I remember where I was when that was going on. She said, I was in the factory floor in Wales, and uh, the, the voice came over from the manager of the factory telling us that the ships had been turned around, and everybody started cheering. Where were you when? I remember where I was in 9-11. I was in Hamburg, Germany, where the 9-11 attacks were planned. There's just some things you just never forget. Some of them are weird, like the alphabet backwards. But some of them are the most important things ever. Like, I will never forget where I was when I understood Jesus to be Savior. I was right here. This is Cornelli Methodist Church in the town that I grew up. It's a tiny little church. You see the outside of it. You see the inside of it. And I remember one Sunday night, I was there with my cousin again, and then two cousins actually, there were four months between us, three sisters were there, and an evangelist stood at the front of the church, and just where that organ is on the right-hand side of the front, he stood there, he, he explained who Jesus was, and then he asked, does, any, does anybody here want to accept Jesus to be their savior? And he said, if you do, get up from the seat. And I remember, you know, you're supposed to have your eyes closed doing all of this kind of stuff, right? I remember having, supposedly having my eyes closed. Well, actually, I had my eyes closed, and then I opened them, and I saw that my entire row was empty. That kind of third bench that you see there, that's where they sat. And they got up from there and just walked to the front. And I tell you, our life has never been the same since. Where were you when? That's, that's a moment I will never forget, because in that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. That is by far the greatest moment in my life. Everything that has happened to me subsequently can be interpreted in the decision I made in that moment. Now, for me, it was actually in a fellowship hall behind those benches that I would, uh, about a year and a half later, give my life to Christ. But I've never forgotten where I was when because this is undoubtedly the greatest moment in my life when Jesus became my Savior. He was Savior. He is Savior. But in that moment, He became mine. One of the key lessons in the book of Hebrews is how Jesus is Savior and what it means. And I'm sure that many of you here can remember where you were when Jesus saved you. Some of us may have grown up in the church, and it's just something we've always known. But there still needs to be that moment where we say, Jesus, I accept who you are, and I bring the, receive that through faith. And then in that moment, we're saved and everything changes. And once we've become followers of Jesus, the book of Hebrews actually is written to encourage people not to forget this incredible salvation that we've been given. And that's why for everyone who has made Jesus their Savior, we kind of get these words of warning and inspiration in Hebrews chapter 2. This is what we read in verses 1 through 4. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels, the word there, angelos, probably means human messengers, okay, rather than supernatural angels. It's probably a transition between the angels' language in chapter 1 that talks about the glory of the preexistent Son and the messengers who were used to give the gospel. So angel is simply messenger. The angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? There's the warning to us. 
Don't ignore so great a salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed to his, uh, according to his will. So great a salvation. And the encouragement to those of us who have received this salvation is, hey, don't neglect it. Don't walk away from it because Jesus is Savior. But it does beg the question, doesn't it? Why is this salvation so great? Clearly, the, the idea here is that a number of people to whom Hebrews was written were in danger of drifting away. And the author reminds them, hey, this salvation is so great. Well, the question is, why is this salvation so great? And the book of Hebrews really answers that by pointing to a number of truths. I want to emphasize three. The first thing is this. The author says, listen, this salvation is so great because in saving us, God went further than people thought necessary. This salvation is so great because in saving us, God goes further than people, even religious people, thought necessary. Now, you have to understand that the book of Hebrews was written to a Greco-Roman world, with a Greco-Roman worldview, with a Jewish worldview. And in that worldview, people really didn't have a problem with the idea of God needing to kind of forgive. They had no problem with that. But what separated and distinguished the Christian faith from the Judaic expression or the Greco-Roman expressions in the way that God dealt with this problem of evil is how deep this work went. Now, this is so significant an idea in the book of Hebrews that the author actually begins by introducing it right at the very beginning. This salvation, the author says, is so great because in saving us, God went further than many people thought was necessary. This is what we read here. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It's kind of where Steve started last week. To understand Hebrews and who Jesus is, you have to understand that Jesus is son. It talks here about pre-existence, the fact that Jesus, in a sense, existed before he was born. Now, you have to understand here that theologically, Jesus didn't exist before the incarnation. Now, before you stone me, Okay, Jesus is the name given to the fusion of the divine and the human. Jesus is the name given to the incarnate Son. But there has never been a time when the eternal Son did not exist. God has always existed in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus is the name given to the, to the process, to the person through which the Holy Spirit triggered the humanity with which the Son of God was clothed. Okay, it's a theological lesson for you, but I don't want to be, commit heresy. Too many people say, Jesus, in eternity past. Listen, no, the eternal son always existed. And so Hebrews begins by talking about the majesty of the eternal son, the glory of the eternal son. And no, no sooner has he done that than look at what he says next. After he had provided purification for sins. The context, the purpose for the, for the coming of the eternal Son to earth is given in terms of the purification of sin. 
this is what revolutionized the Christian message from even the Judaic message. And then the author says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. His work was done. So from the beginning of the book, Jesus is basically shown to be the pre-existing eternal son who came to deal with something called sin. Now, we may have people in here who hear this word sin and may have a problem with it. Maybe you are someone who's exploring the Christian faith. Maybe you've been dragged along to church. What a day to be dragged along to church, right? And you hear this word called sin, and you're like, mm, I'm not sure. Well, well, let's get something straight, right? You don't have to be a theist to acknowledge the problem of sin. You can change the word if you want, but it's real. Not only is it real, you don't need to be a theist to even acknowledge that sin needs to be punished. If for you God does not exist, okay, the reality of evil and wrong does. So for example, if God does not exist in your worldview, then basically humanity, we, are responsible to one another for our own well-being. Sin in this context becomes any act of selfishness that actually exposes another human being to harm or danger as a result of me prioritizing me over anyone else. And if you think about it, the rule of law is actually introduced to govern, to refine, to kind of guide what should happen when one person's selfishness actually harms another person? So we're in tax season. We need to pay our taxes, and we all know that a person who doesn't pay their taxes is going to be issued with a hefty fine. Why? You are being so selfish if you think that you have a right to harness resources from the world that we all share and actually not fulfill your responsibility to helping another person. We may not like where the tax levels are set and everything else. If you're moaning over here, you should go to Germany, believe me. But the reality is we know that when we break a law, there is basic punishment. So look, you don't need to be a theist to acknowledge that there is something called wrong, and wrong is both real and wrong will be punished. Just like we can acknowledge that, the Greek or Roman Judaic world acknowledged that. But the difference was the Christian faith recognizes that sin is a deeper issue than what simply is happening on the outside. Sin is actually a power that motivates us to do wrong. It's not just something we do wrong. Jesus didn't just die for what you've done wrong. He died to destroy the power that forces us, compels us to do wrong in the first place. This is why the Christian faith, this is why the, the idea of Jesus being Savior was so different. See, in Christian thinking, sin is basically both a missing of the mark, that's often the way that it's described, we miss the mark. There's a standard, it's like shooting an arrow, you aim for the target, and we're not very good at archery, right? So we miss the mark. It kind of says, oops, I've missed. I remember a friend of mine, a musician, he was in Germany doing his first concert in Germany, and he was standing on the stage, and uh, he went to strike through the string on his first note, and he said, missed. Well, unfortunately, missed means manure, and manure means something else. He really missed the mark. Then people got up and they walked out because he'd missed it. Cultural lesson for you, right? 
oh, I just missed the mark. No, sin isn't just a missing of the mark. Sin is also an active rebellion against God. There's the two sides here. Sin is intentional, sin is unintentional. Jesus didn't just die for those things that we've done intentionally. He also died to destroy the power that leads us to sin in the first place. Sin leaves a mark, it leaves a stain. How many of you have ever spilled coffee on a shirt or on your pants? Any of you ever done that? I remember the day I was speaking in a Welsh chapel from my RE teacher in school, and I was about 17 years of age, and she said, hey, would you come and preach in our little Welsh chapel? And that was a service that was done entirely in Welsh, and they gave me coffee, and I was wearing like a light color pants, like a chino kind of thing, and I spilt the coffee all down my pants. I tell you, that wooden pulpit became my friend for the entire service. Now, here's the reality. Whether I'd done it intentionally or unintentionally, the fact is the coffee left a stain. It was stained, and it's the same thing with this idea of sin. What was revolutionary about the Christian message is that God didn't just die or do something about the sins that we all do. He was doing something about the power that causes us to do those things in the first place. So when it comes to the idea of Jesus as Savior, we have to realize how revolutionary this was. He was dealing with the hidden things, the things on the inside. And this was necessary, the Bible says, because God is holy. You remember when God turned up to Moses, he said, take your shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. It wasn't as if the dirt was holy there. It was God was there. And where God is, there's holiness. So it's necessary because God is holy. Secondary, secondly, it was necessary because sin was a disease, the Bible says, that's beyond human cure. We can't do anything about this. And why? Because sin has an inward aspect to it, not just an external aspect to it. Now, in Jesus' day, many people believed that you could be clean before God by not doing certain things. So, I'm not going to eat certain foods. I'm not going to do this. It's the whole idea that if I don't do something on the outside, then I'll be okay. But what Jesus said is, wait a minute, sin actually begins in the attitude and the intentions of the inner person. We need saving, Jesus says, Mark chapter 7 from verse 20 to 23. We need saving because outward acts don't cleanse the heart. This salvation is so great, the author to Hebrews says, because God actually deals with the internal things, the hidden things, the things that people don't see. I love the scripture here, Hebrews 9, 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Notice the sprinkled outside, okay. Sanctify, make them holy so that they are outwardly clean. Okay, the, the sacrifices, the old covenant covered sin. Did it deal with it? No. Salvation is necessary because God goes further than the old covenant ever could. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, notice then there is a difference between the involuntary sacrifice of animals and the voluntary sacrifice of, of God's son. Jesus, as Steve said last week, went to the Father over and over again and said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. God didn't say anything. There is a difference between the involuntary sacrifice of animals and the voluntary sacrifice of Christ. He voluntarily did this. Why? Because he knew how important it was. So how much more could this act Look at this, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. And that's the part I need to focus on. It's the idea that the wages of sin is death. That seems so harsh, 
What kind of God is this? I'll explore that later on. So that we may serve the living God. Jesus died so that those sins that actually lead to death would actually be put to one side, and now we can serve a living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So there's a whole host of things going on here, right? You've got the idea of death. You've got blood. You've got, uh, you've got sins that lead to death. You've got the sacrifice of Jesus that leads to life. You've got the old covenant. I'm going to explain some of this. But the most important thing right now is this whole idea of sin being something on the inside inside that impacted what the author here calls the conscience. In Hebrews, the conscience is that point at which a person gets a glimpse of the holiness of God and recognizes their own brokenness. There's more to the conscience in biblical theology than this, but this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. When that happens, essentially, what we note is what Proverbs 28.13 says, and that is simply that we need to repent. We need to repent of this. So the key idea here with regard to conscience is that there is something on the inside that when we, in our brokenness, encounter the holiness of God, our conscience is challenged, and in that moment, we have a decision. Salvation was necessary because sin is an internal issue that we all wrestle with. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And the second message of Hebrews is simply this. What is wonderful about this salvation is not only that God goes further than is necessary, actually when you discover the message of Jesus, God actually goes way further than people thought ever possible. I, I love this from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 says this. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, which is Jesus' death, resulted in justification for all people. Okay, stop there. One trespass, one sin, Adam and Eve. There is an idea in Scripture that when Adam and Eve sinned, we all fell with him. And since that point, the power of sin has the held sway to basically motivate our actions. But then, because of one act of righteousness, Jesus being willing to die, now we can be justified. Justification, this is simply put, stand before God just as if we'd never sinned. That's, that's so theologically inadequate, but it's a good explanation of it. Because Jesus died, we can stand before God as if we'd never sinned, and that means life for all people. So just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the way uh, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. So what we're seeing here is, look, sin is a problem that is far deeper than many people think. And if you accept that, then the, re the, the response of God is to go further than many people thought possible. Now, here's what we need to grab onto here. Sin is not simply something we do. Sin is also something that we have, uh, that is a power that motivates what we do. Jesus died not to just to forgive what we've done, but to destroy the power that leads us to do it. What does this basically mean? 
This is the implication of this. Salvation is not accomplished through the cross alone, but by Christ alone. The cross makes forgiveness possible. In Adam, and if we look at our, all of our behavior, we all know this to be true. Our own wrong is an offense that is real and needs to be punished. Humanity must pay the price for their wrong. However, God in his love and Jesus in his faithful sacrifice took that punishment for us. Forgiveness is possible through that act. However, freedom from the controlling power of sin needed more than just the cross. It needed the entire Christ event. Hebrews talks about this. This is a term in theological circles that's called the kerygma, the proclamation. There was a message about Jesus that was proclaimed that was more than simply the cross. Yes, the cross became the symbol. That's why we have one on the stage. The symbol of forgiveness. But forgiveness is not the end of the story. Salvation isn't about, okay, I am now forgiven and I get this free pass into heaven when we die. That's not the message of salvation. Salvation is, no, Jesus died to set us free from the controlling power of sin. That takes more than the cross, that takes the Christ. Hebrews is clear to talk about this. It it talks, we've already seen in in chapter one and verse two about the pre-existence of the eternal son. It'll end in Hebrews with this whole idea that one day Jesus will return and everything that is wrong will actually be made right. But in between, the book of Hebrews talks about all of this. This is what is called in theological circles the kerygma, the proclamation. It's a Greek word that means proclamation. This is what was proclaimed, that was taught, that was announced about Jesus. That God has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God triggered the flesh with which the Son of God was clothed as a man. There was, in the incarnation, He assumed a human body. He actually lived a sinless life. That meant that humanity could pay the price for their sin, but actually because there was a perfect offering, but at the same time God did it because He was fully God and fully man. It talks about Him suffering through life, that there was something about suffering. It talks about him dying on a cross. It talks about him rising again and ascending to the Father because the Spirit of God went up. The Son of God went up. The Spirit of God came down. This is the gospel story. This is the full gospel in a sense. Then it talks about him interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is praying for us. And then it talks about him coming back. Listen, salvation is more about a spiritual passing to heaven when we die. It is actually about we can live full and free. We can be made right and we can be incorporated into a body called the church that is going about the putting right project of God in the world. That's the gospel. But if we limit the gospel, if we limit Jesus as Savior simply to me, It is a sanctified form of selfishness that is as sinful as sin itself. You are not saved just for you. You are saved for you to be put right, to experience the glory of Christ and share that with the world. And in doing this, friends, God went further than many people thought possible. 
But you know what? You'll only accept that God did that if you actually accept that sin is a problem that you can't manage. Many religions in the world, and this is the difference between Christianity and other religions, they basically say sin can be managed. And if sin can be managed, you don't need God to do all of this. In saving us, God went further than people thought necessary because sin is a power that controls human behavior. In saving us, God went further than people thought possible. He actually paid the price for sin itself. By the way, if you want those full slides, we've actually already uploaded those to the central website. They're already there. You can download those. There are many scriptures in your study this week. If you want to go through Hebrews, uh, you can do that yourself. So the gospel message is a proclamation of Jesus. It's a, it, it's a proclamation that kind of culminates in the events around Easter that he was crucified, that he buried, and he rose. But the question many of us ask is, why, why did Jesus even need to die? Why is there this idea of death and wrong? Okay, I accept that there's punishment for wrong, but does it have to be that drastic? It's one of those wrestling things that we go through. And the other factor is, this world that we're reading about 2,000 years ago is so different to our own, right? We read of blood. We read of death. We read of all of these sacrifice stuff, and it's like so different. And so there's a little bit of work we need to do to, to kind of grapple with, why did Jesus even need to die in the first place? Have a look at this text, Hebrews chapter 10. This is what we read. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Notice this. This is written to believers who have experienced the power of God's salvation, but are ultimately allowing the controlling power of sin still to control their behavior. Now, great theological conversation here with regards to, okay, once saved, always saved, or fall from grace, you can make up your mind. But you see the implication here. This is a real danger. See, Jesus died, so we no longer have to do that. The difference between me and my former state and me and Christ is that it is for freedom that Christ has set me free. Now I can say no to sin. I can say yes to Christ. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Wow, that's harsh. Raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The theological language for this is called the wrath of God. The anger of God that burns against sin. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Here we go again. It is a dreadful thing to, to fall into the hands of a living God. You get the idea here? It seems as though we're saved from the wrath of God. It begs the question, what kind of God is this? Right? What kind of God is this? It would be true to say that many people approach this question and view God in the way that we see 
in an old movie a number of years ago, Star Trek V. Any of you Star Trek fans out there? Okay, a couple of you. Star Trek V is the final frontier. This is where Spock's brother, okay, kind of manipulates the ship to go on a search, to go through the barrier, to actually get to meet God himself. And as they meet God, what kind of God are they going to meet? Rather than me trying to explain the wrath of God, have a look at this. It's about three minutes long. Have a look at this and just engage with that question. What type of God is this? You get a feel for the issue here. You've got the portrayal here of a God who inflicts pain in the context of, in the context of Star Trek for, for his own pleasure. For God to be God and to be a God of punishment, the thought goes, must mean that he kind of enjoys some joy, takes some joy from administering pain. Is that the kind of God we're talking about here? If the wages of sin is death and God has the ability to do life, why does he need death in the first place? What, what's going on with this? Well, we need to understand that the foundation for God's anger against sin, his wrath, is actually in his holy character itself. Sin is a power that moves people away from the holiness of God. And sometimes some people think that God comes against sin because he cannot be near sin because it taints his holiness. That's the way I always heard this described. And then I pick up the book of Job, and I read Job, and I read the adversary in the presence of God himself. And I'm like, if that's what it is, how, is God, how are God and Satan even in the same sphere? As I was thinking about this, I realized that God is not like my daughter's pristine white couch that is in my basement at home right now. This thing is so white that I had to question long and hard whether I allowed our kids to even, even sit on it because if they did, they would soil it. God's displeasure against sin is because whenever he draws near to sin, the raging furno of his holiness burns against it. Look at this text here. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be hidden, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Now this week, I heard a number of people from our congregation battling sickness, had to go into hospital, a number of them for surgery. If you go into a hospital for surgery, you want the doctor to use sterilized equipment, right? You want to be in a sterilized environment because you don't want viruses getting in the way of your health. The Bible says that sin is a virus, a spiritual virus that has no place in the sterile environment of God's holiness. And when God's holiness encounters sin, God acts against it. And the very mention of God's anger against sin is troubling to many of us. And I think the reason why it's often troubling to many of us is because many of us have encountered the limitations, the frailty, the outright sinfulness of human anger. I've shared this story with you before, but I remember being a high school student, sitting in a math class, I was on the first row, as Mr. Watkins basically wrote down this algebraic equation on the board at the front. He did one of the lines wrong. As a result, he couldn't get the conclusion. I basically said to Mr. Watkins, sir, you've got it wrong because of that line right there. And he turned around, and in a fit of fury, he punched me straight across the face. Many people view God's wrath through the frailty and the limitations of human anger, but we shouldn't view it that way. A better example for me was that of Mrs. Phillips. Mrs. Phillips was the principal of my elementary school, and in Britain growing up at that point in time, we basically had a point where we would have to, by law, hold assemblies, church services, three times a week to start school. Now, I wasn't as fond of church services then as I was right now, and I hated the ones we did at school. So most of us wanted to try and be the first person out of chapel. So in this elementary, uh, on this elementary chapel occasion, I sat at the end of a row, and I wanted to be the first out. Well, Lee Phillips, friend of mine, supposed friend of mine, came and tried to push me away from the end of the line. I wasn't going to have that, so I pushed him back. He pushed me, a brawl ensued. Mrs. Phillips stopped the service. Yes, I was caught fighting in church, and basically she took us to the office. I went to the office, and she basically explained what I'd done wrong, what the consequence of this was, and according to school law and law at the time, the acceptable punishment was basically for me to hold out my hand and for Mrs. Phillips to hit me over the hand with a ruler, and it was a wooden ruler. And she did that. To me and Lee, we both cried, and then what was amazing, she gave us a hug. I know you can't do that anymore, but you could back then. She gave us a hug, and then she went to the cookie jar and gave us all a cookie. You can't understand God's anger against sin unless you understand that God balances his wrath with his love. The Christian gospel is not simply that sin needs to be punished and humanity needs to pay the price for its sin. The Christian gospel is, but God in his love sent Christ. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think that's Romans 5.8, by the way. God's wrath. God comes against sin. God is alive and active, and whenever he comes, he is working against sin. Now, what is the application of this for you and for me? I think the application of this is for you and for me is what are we doing with the power of sin that has been annihilated, basically, has no right other than the power we give it. 
What are we doing with that sin as it works in our own life right now? Because the second or the, the third dimension of Hebrews' presentation of this great salvation is this, that when we respond to this in faith, when we say, Jesus, I thank you that you in your body took the punishment for my sin because God is a holy God, actually works to deal with sin. I thank you that you take that punishment in my body. I, in that moment, uh, in your body, I, in that moment, am saved. So, so, it's kind of that it? And the answer is no, it's not. That's just the beginning, not the end. Folks, salvation is the beginning, not the end. And this is, again, what I love about Hebrews. What I love about Hebrews is the way it presents salvation. Once we understand everything I've said, that God goes further than people thought necessary, further than people thought possible, then we realize, man, if I respond to this, God is going to do more in my life than I could ever imagine. And it begins with this idea of freedom from sin. Friends, too many Christians abuse this. They say it is for freedom Christ has set me free, and now I am free to live however I want. That's antinomianism. God didn't set you free to do whatever you want. God set you free to do whatever he wants. God set you free to say no to those things that have the power to destroy your life, to kill your relationships, and to murder people around the world. Freedom from sin, that's where it begins. And then it kind of ends in Hebrews with this promise of eternal rest. There will come a time when all of our striving, when all of our pain, when all of our suffering, when all of our struggle will be gone. But until then, this is what we get to experience. We get to experience God moving. This is the pilgrimage theme in Hebrews. This idea that we meet that God is on the move, that God never stops moving. Church, the church is supposed to be a movement, not a monument. We, we don't kind of put a cross on there and we kind of immortalize what happened 2,000 years ago. We recognize that what happened 2,000 years ago is actually empowering people to live right now. God on the move. Is God moving in your life? How is God moving in your life? If you're experiencing freedom from sin, Jesus is still save, uh, the Savior. Salvation in Scripture is past tense. I was saved. It's present tense. I am being saved. It's also future tense. I am being saved. How is God working in your life? How are you experiencing freedom? Is God moving? Is God working? If not, then heed the dangers of Hebrews chapter 2. We're drifting. But, but there's more than that. There's the promise of presence and help. God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. God is always there. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we are saved, we get to experience this. We get to grow in this. But there's more. There's now open access. You don't need anybody else to approach God. You can approach God on your own because of what Jesus has done. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his perfection is given to you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus went up so that the Holy Spirit could come down and take what he did on the cross and put it into your life. Jesus had unfettered access to the Father. Steve talked about this last week and some of the implications of it. We do too. But I love the last part here, personal transformation. I thank God that while I am not what I should be, I thank God that I'm not what I used to be. God is changing me. This isn't a gathering of the perfect. This is the gathering of the being made perfect. 
How are you experiencing all of this in your life? If Jesus is Savior, this has to be your experience. This can be your experience. If not, we need to do something about it. Let me ask, where are you at in this journey? We're mindful that the church is a gathering of different people in so many different walks of life. And, and maybe you are here and, and you are a believer and your faith is stagnant. You're not experiencing freedom from sin. There are still issues that you are raging with. You're not experiencing the dynamism of your faith. There is not a movement going on. If that's you, then I want to encourage you, even this morning, to say, Father, won't you in this season, the new, in the new year, won't you do a work in me that you will move me this year to places where I've never been, experiencing you in a way that I've never experienced. More than that, Many of you are mature in the faith, but you're not involved in God's putting right project in the world. Our next series, Roll Call, is all about how that happens. Be a part of this. Sign up to serve. We're looking for group leaders. Some of you know the Bible. Help people discover their place in this. But also I'm mindful that there may well be people here who have recently returned to church or are in here for the first time, or even watching online more likely today for the first time. What do you do with this? Well, what I would encourage you to do is to make Jesus your Savior. See, Jesus is Savior. That's who He is. The question is, is He yours? Is He yours? If you're here today and you cannot think of a time when you have made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to take out your phone, note this number, 616-425-5378, Simply send a text with your name, and our team of people would love to get alongside you and walk with you and demonstrate to you what it means to grow in a relationship with God where you experience Him to be your Savior, putting you right and using you as part of His putting right project in the world. Some of you may not like to do that, but as you leave today, we've got a gift for you. As you leave, our ushers will be standing there holding up these. It's just a Bible with a gift. If you're saying, you know what, I, I, I need to give my life to Christ. I need to return to him in a real way. Then as you leave, just take this gift. Our gift to you. Inside, there's a, there's a book that will just briefly explain what it means to follow Jesus and how you can experience freedom and hope and life. But for all of us, more than anything else, I pray that we would understand that there is more to salvation, to Jesus being Savior, than simply forgiveness from sin. Friends, this is just the beginning. But as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, the kerygma, the proclamation, is about all that Jesus is, all of who he is. Friends, let us never grow tired of magnifying Jesus. Let us never grow tired of singing those songs that actually talk about the gospel from beginning to end. Because there's more to the gospel than me.